We apologize for the quality of this recording. We had some technical difficulties, but hopefully you'll still be able to enjoy this content. The following is a continuation in our series looking at who Jesus is and how his character changes the way we live. We hope you enjoy. continue talking about what it looks like to navigate life with Jesus tonight. We're going to talk about what it means that Jesus says that he is the son of God. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this day. Thank you for these students. I do pray that you would, even as we're sitting here and it's getting late at night and we're tired, Lord, that you would open our hearts and open our ears and our minds to stretch ourselves and to seek to understand your word and to understand you more. I do pray that you would help us to leave here better equipped with the knowledge of what it means that you are the son of God and why that's so important for us. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So have you all ever heard a child say something really funny or do something really funny? Yeah, I have two small children and they do really goofy, funny stuff all the time. I love it. I think it's hilarious. My daughter loves to run around the house and she loves to do the Bluey theme song, Noises, and she loves to just shake her booty. It's the funniest thing ever. She'll just start singing the Bluey song, and she'll just get up and start doing this. And I think it's the cutest thing ever. I love it. My son, I love, this is really funny. So Mikey has a pair of Jordans, and he loves wearing these Jordans. And the reason is because he calls them his fast shoes. And they're faster than his other shoes because they're Jordans. So when he wants to run really fast at recess, he wears a certain pair of shoes to school. It's not that they actually make him run faster. He just thinks they do. He's really funny. They always find a million extra things to do when it's time for bed. They always all of a sudden get really tired when I want them to start cleaning things. They leave Legos all over the house, yet they cry whenever they step on them. They love to make up games. But at the end of the day, my children as much as they might frustrate me in some way, shape, or form, bring me a lot of joy. I love them very much. There's a lot that they can do to frustrate me. There's a lot that they can do to disappoint me. But there's nothing they can ever do to make me not love them. I want my children to be in a family where they feel built up, where they feel encouraged, challenged, and safe. And I hope and pray that my children grow up being loved by me and my wife and know what it means to be loved But as a fallen sinner, I know that I fall short as a father. As a friend once told me, they're probably going to end up in therapy and I'll end up paying the bill for it. I hope and pray that my children don't have major issues because of me as a father. That is my hope and prayer. In this fallen world, I know as a father that until Jesus returns, my relationship with my kids is going to be affected by my sin. It's going to be affected by their sin. And I can't get around that. And as much as it causes problems with my relationship with them, there actually is hope. And there actually is a certain level of grace and mercy that we can see in how Jesus treats us and in his relationship with his own father that teaches us something. Jesus is a gracious, loving God. He is. And he's a gracious, loving son. And tonight we're going to look at this relationship between the father and the son. And I want us to see why that's such an important part of who Jesus is. It's not just a tagline that we throw and say, oh, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. That's great. It is, 
But it's so much deeper and more important than that. There's a quality that I love most about my children. It's actually that my children are way more forgiving than I am. So, like, if I lose my cool, like I did in the car this afternoon, on our way to H-E-B, there's just weeping and gnashing of teeth because they're tired after school, and every little thing just sets them off. No matter how much I lose my patience with them, my kids always forgive me, and I love that about them, and I never want them to lose that. But as we look at Jesus' relationship with us, it's even better than that. We learn what mercy is from Christ. We learn what it means to love from Christ. We learn what it means to interact and be in relationship with others from Christ because he can do this perfectly where we can't. So he gives us a model for how we can understand grace and love and mercy better. And that's what I want us to see through this whole idea that he is the son of God. So kind of our main point for tonight is that as the son of God, Jesus shows us how to live as sons and daughters. So I want us to turn to John chapter 1. John's going to come up and read that for us. John 1, 14 through 18. Okay. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from We have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the past two weeks, we have been really doing a deep dive into what it means that Jesus is fully man. And then we talked about what it means for Jesus to be fully God. Being the Son of God has some overlap with both of those things, but this is a very important title that Jesus has. Because John writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So from this we see that He is the only Son. The only one. This can also be translated as uniquely one. So we believe that Jesus is the only Son of God. Now, why do you think that is such an important distinction for us in our culture today? Have you ever had a Mormon knock on your door? Mormons believe something vastly different than we do. And this is important because on the surface of looking at something like Mormonism, it can actually look very much like what we believe. Because they read their Bibles, right? They say the Jesus-y things. But at the core, Mormons actually believe that Jesus wasn't the only Son of God. Did you know that? They actually believe that all of us, every single one of us, is that same title, a son or daughter of God. Now, on the surface, that's actually not 100% untrue. But the way that they function within that is vastly different than what we believe. We believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Whereas they believe, that Jesus was just one of the sons of God, and we too share in that same title. And if you want to get into the real core of what they believe, everybody eventually becomes their own God. They typically leave that out of their gospel presentation. And I'm not here to just bash Mormonism all night. We want to pray for them, right? But it's important for us to understand that Jesus is the only son of God because he is the only true son of God. There's a lot of weird stuff that can happen when we confuse who Jesus is. As we'll see in a little bit, okay, we are brought into God's family. Okay, we actually are made into sons and daughters of God. But you and I didn't start out that way like Jesus did. I want that distinction to be clear. Like Jesus' title as Son of God is different than 
my title as a son of God. This is important when it deals with topics like Mormonism. This is from a guy named Joseph Fielding Smith. This is not the same Joseph Smith that founded Mormonism, but this is one of his descendants. And he says this, All men and women are in the similitude of the universal father and mother, and are literally sons and daughters of deity, as spirits that they were offspring of a celestial parentage. That's what's at the heart of Mormonism. So when you get into the nitty-gritty of it, it starts straying away from what we believe. Okay, verse 16 from our passage back in John tells us that from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. His fullness. Okay, there's a specificity to us believing and trusting that there's this uniqueness about Jesus. Okay, that's an important part of our faith, is that there's something so unique about Christ himself that sets him apart from other religion groups. Now this is going to tie into our understanding of the Trinity. Does anybody understand the Trinity? It's a very hard thing to wrap our head around, but I'm going to hopefully give you a tool tonight to help you better understand it. Okay? I'm going to draw something on the board for you. I haven't done this in a while. So we're going to draw a picture. Okay, so when it comes to the Trinity, here's what I would like you to have a general understanding of. Because I hope this is helpful for you. Okay? Uh, if, if the doctrine of the Trinity confuses you, welcome to the club. It is a very difficult doctrine to understand, but it is all over the Scriptures We are told in the scriptures about God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. When Jesus tells us to go baptize, what does he say? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So there's two different categories I want you to think about when you think about the Trinity. I'm going to use some fancy theological terms. Have fun with it, because fancy theological terms are cool, okay? Uh, We're going to talk about what it means to understand ontology. Does anybody know what ontology is? Yes, Deja. Yes, okay, so, on, so, yeah, great, perfect. So, thinking about the Trinity in an ontological view, okay, that means the study of being, the study of what something is or who they are. So, from an ontological perspective, we believe that the Father, the Son, and I'm just going to shorthand, the Holy Spirit, are all what? If this is the study of being, what do you think they are? They're all equal. They're the same. They all have power. They all have authority. There's not like a hierarchy where we say, oh, God, you know, Father, he has first chair, Son, he's got second chair, Holy Spirit, he's just, you know, an afterthought, he's got the third chair. No. There's a clear unity to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Westminster Larger Catechism in question nine says, how many persons are in the Godhead? And the answer is, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three are one, true, eternal, the same substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by what is personally proper to them, which we'll get to that in just a second. So again, for an ontological understanding of this, we look at the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the Trinity, all serving with the same power, the same substance, None of them are less than the other. We actually see this in Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4. This is something that's called the Shema. It's something that Israelites would repeat to themselves because it was a declaration of who God is. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So again, there's no separation of their power. But when it comes to their work and what they do in their contribution to our redemption, there are differences. So this is what we get into when we talk about the economic trinity. 
So when you think of the word economic, what do you think of? Nathan. Okay, you think of money. What else? Work. Okay, yeah. As we look at the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they do have distinct activities that they perform to save you and me. We specify that work amongst the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So when we look at each one of those, I'm just going to abbreviate Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay. So if you had to think about the specific nature of the work of the Father in your salvation, what do you think that is? We're going to think tonight. This is going to be really good for us. What role does the Father have in your salvation? Okay, yeah, so he's a sender. Like He sends the Redeemer, the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15, which we talked about a few weeks ago. What else? Okay, he serves as a caring father to us, right? Okay, he's a creator. It is his design for us to be saved. He's the one that made the promise in Genesis 3.15 that I'm going to send somebody to come and do what Adam and Eve failed to do, right? So there's a certain specificity to his work. Okay, R.C. Sproul, he writes this. It is the Father who sends the Son into our world for redemption. It's the Son who acquires our redemption for us. It's the Spirit who applies that redemption to us. We don't have three gods. We have one God and three persons. The three persons are distinguished in the economy of redemption in terms of what they do. And he continues by saying this. It's the Father who designs the plan for redemption It's the Son who's given the assignment by the Father to accomplish that redemption. And, of course, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to apply that work of redemption to us. But we have to understand that this does not represent a struggle within the Godhead itself, but rather an eternal agreement. The Son sent by the Father, and the Son is absolutely delighted to be sent to carry out this mission that the Father has given to him. So, as we talk about Jesus being the Son of God, he is the one that was sent for us, His role in our salvation was to perform the sacrifice that was needed. The Father had planned this, sent the Son. And when we understand the Holy Spirit, we understand that the Holy Spirit is the one that actually helps us understand what we're reading when we read the Bible. He's the one that illuminates our eyes and minds to understand as we read. He's the one that convicts us of sin. So they all have a specific role. But being the Son of God is such an important thing for us. It's not just a throwaway title that we give to Jesus. This is one of the most important titles of him because it means that he truly is the one that God promised to send. So why does all this matter? Galatians 4, 4 to 7. Caitlin's going to come up and read that for us. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions of sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, being the son of God has great implications for you and me. And going back to the whole ontological versus economic language, God's economy for Jesus for you was to come and redeem you, to die on the cross for you. Verse 4 says, the father sent forth the son to do what? To accomplish what he sent him to do, to accomplish his plan of redemption for the world. And in this plan of redemption, right, that fracture in the relationship that happened back in the garden is repaired through his work, through his job as the son of God. And he would envelop us into the family of God through what? It said it there. It starts with A. A lot of you. OK, 
Adoption is a big thread in the fabric of this church. Okay, We love adoption here. Many of you in this room are adopted. And what is adoption a picture of? You're not what? You're not an orphan anymore, okay? So adoption is, is a picture of somebody who does not have a family or maybe is part of a family that needs some help. And they're brought into what? Another family, right? And through the process of adoption, is that child a secondary child? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> okay. Do they share in all the rights and privileges of their new family? No. Yes. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that all adoptions are perfect. But ideally, when someone is adopted, they are brought into a family and they're not treated like a second-class son. They're not treated like a second-class daughter. They're not interim members. They're not less than children. They're not provisional parts of the family. They are part of the family. And again, I know that it doesn't always work out that way. But in an ideal situation with a loving family, that is what should happen. They are in. And as Jesus accomplishes that for us, talks about that, how he adopts us into the family of God. That means he brings us into the family of God. He gives us the rights of sons and daughters of God. This is where the Mormons get this wrong. Okay? They believe that they already had that right. We believe that Jesus gives us that right. We're going to read a passage to close tonight that tells us exactly that very thing. In doing this, the Spirit indwells in us and tells us the truth about salvation, the job that he was sent to do, and through that, we are made sons and daughters of God. And as the Son of God, he is the only one that can do that for you. Y'all know that I am a fanboy of the song, Jesus on my cross have taken. I love this song. It is my favorite hymn. The story behind this song has such rich meaning to it. It was written in 1824 by a man named Henry Francis Light. And part of the reason I love this song is because of the deep emotional connection that comes from the words in this song. One of the stanzas says, I have called thee Abba Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good for me. So this whole idea that he's calling upon God as a father is super interesting because Henry Light's father did not like him. In fact, when he would sign papers for his boarding school that he sent him to, he would sign as his uncle because he hated his son that much. So for him to recognize that there's this beautiful picture of adoption where God adopts me as a son and I can call him father, that undoes hurt and pain that he's received from his earthly father. And he gets to be a son of God and experience the beauties and richness of being part of the family of God. Light's father was an absentee dad. He was far more preoccupied with fishing expeditions and hunting trips than to actually spend time with his son. Like his dad just didn't care for him. But through this deep study and pursuit and desire to understand who Jesus is as the Son of God and what it means to have a heavenly father, he actually was freed from the bitterness and anger that he had towards his own father. He writes, think what spirit dwells within me. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win me. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Repine is just a fancy word for complaining. All that being said, the fact that Jesus is the son of God teaches you and me what it's like to be a member of the family of God. We learn what it means to be sons and daughters of God from his relationship with his own father. 
And that teaches us how to live. He truly understands the importance of the whole picture of adoption, and he applies that to you and me. All the richness, all the beauty, all the wonder of it, Jesus being the Son of God sent to redeem us, now we have a Heavenly Father. We have a Father that's not going to fail. We have a Father that's not going to lose his cool in the car because the kids are going crazy after aftercare today. They have a perfect Father who loves them and will never fail them. We have that. We have a perfect Father who never fails us. And as we navigate life with Jesus, I want us to keep thinking about these categories that we're describing Jesus in. The fact that he's fully man, fully God, the promised one, son of God. His role as son continues to impact you even now. He didn't just save you several thousand years ago, and then he just sits back and says, well, I hope everything works out for them. No, he's actively involved in your life through the grace of the Holy Spirit. And as the son of God, he's the one that has secured your place as a son and daughter. All right, Jesus shows us how to live sons and daughters in the family. Earlier on, John chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to look at that. John 1, verse 12. John writes this at the beginning of his gospel. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, what does it say? Say it out loud. He gave the right to become children of God. He gave you that right. And we get to experience the benefits and blessings of that right. You get to live in light of that. Okay, so we're going to talk about that in small groups a little bit more. But but let me go and pray for us, and then we'll split up. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you do adopt us as children, Lord. And we thank you for the blessing that we have of eternal life because of that, Lord. There's no greater thing that we can celebrate than the fact that you would come and die for us and give us life. So I pray that you would be with us, help us to wrestle with that, help us to better understand that. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. We hope this has been helpful for you. Please keep an ear out for more audio upcoming from WIF.